0: Excellent. We'll allow you all to click off our recording disclaimer. Great. Well, thank you all for joining us today. We're, we're really glad to have you all here. Uh, when we look at a Thursday afternoon during the springtime, it, it might be getting harder and harder to, uh, drag people away from their gardens and put them in front of their computers. So hopefully we get a few more people on the call here, but we're, we're really glad to, to talk to those of you that are with us already. Um just matters of of housekeeping, if you have any questions, you can feel free to unmute in an orderly fashion and ask your question. You can use the raise hand function in Zoom or you can email uh the team at info at raccoongroup.com. And any one of those work well for us and, and we welcome your questions throughout. And with that, we are ready to, to dive in. So thanks for joining us. I don't know, uh, we, we had discussed several topics that were sort of front and center on everybody's minds. We we're trying to dig up, you know, something new, something different that people were talking about. And really it came back to the th- same three topics just over and over again. So what we're seeing right now is the topics of of inflation, of course, rising interest rates, and also the real estate markets and the impact from the first two items on the real estate markets. So those were the three core topics that we were looking to dive into today. But we, of course, if there's any topics that we're missing because three is not a long list, we we welcome any of those from, from you all on the call here today. Great, well, would you like to start us off, Rob?
1: Sure. Why not? No rest for the wicked. That's my favorite expression. So, um, you know, when we hear people talk about not being able to move ahead and make investment decisions because the markets are so volatile or things in the world are, are so unsettled, I I don't remember a time when that wasn't the case. Um, and you know we've w- we who are in the business of making decisions and, and sort of long term strategic planning, when we look back at like the history of interest rates and inflation and you know many of many of our clients are, were well in their business careers during the 70s when when we had you know persistently high inflation when they tried price controls. Um and and interest rates went up, and that really was the last time that um that we had a situation where it looked like uh inflation was going to be the guiding sort of factor that everyone had to had to dial in to their decisions about their homes or their portfolios or just generally purchasing you know large items and um because we haven't had inflation in such a long time and because interest rates have been low for so long uh i think the investment community has gotten used to very high returns on equities and real estate and the the demographics uh, um of 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 the countries, the Western world, and really all the developed nations, including China now, are very different. With um, with a a, a much um, a much changed population growth curve, with with people having fewer children, people living longer, um, and uh, um, all of these things impact kind of our overall investment philosophy. Because we have to look at the big picture and decide what kind of uh, uh, asset allocation, how much in bonds, how much in stocks, real estate, uh, private investments. And, and that's, uh, that's what we've been doing. So today, when we have sort of the confluence of sort of the, the supply chain issues that, that, that happened during the pandemic because of slowdowns and shutdowns and that continue in China in particular – and now, because of the the Russian Ukraine conflict, we have you know other kinds of commodity re- related uh, slowdowns and shutdowns in trade. And so, the the sort of last twenty years where global trade increased every year is not necessarily in long term reverse, but certainly short term it, it has reversed. And so, um, when when, uh, we, we see inflation as a factor of, of, of lower supply, um, and, uh, and, and these events that happen around the world. So that's kind of the biggest thing on our minds is how have the markets reacted so far? How have the central banks reacted? What are they likely to do? How is that likely to impact your portfolio returns? And then are there strategies to Mitigate those sort of exogenous events, um, and uh, um, and there are there are strategies, and and that's what we'd like to talk about. So that's kind of the big picture. Um, uh, Kyle, why don't you talk about you know how the markets have done and and the different mm-hmm. asset classes, and then we can we can pursue that.
0: Great, yeah. Just in in conjunction with what you were saying, Rob, is that not only are we facing these great supply chain issues, we've also just had huge amounts of liquidity. And I know that relates to the interest rate policy, but also just an influx of cash into people's pockets over the past couple of years that have allowed for increased demand. So you have a real increase in demand kind of coming head to head with that shortage in supply, which is part of our inflationary pressures. And and we really... Started the year off with, with those issues and I mean January and February were very difficult months in the market and we're seeing a little bit of return to that after a pretty good March and so we sit today looking at the markets and the S&P 500 is down 7.7% year to date. Uh, the kind of the high flyers and, and I don't know if any of you were watching Netflix and Netflix, uh, they reported earnings two days ago, I guess. And I think they're down about 44% or so since earnings uh, report. And that's in a matter of two days. So one of the largest tech companies in the world, uh, down 44% in two days. Maybe they're not one of the largest anymore. Uh, so we look at the NASDAQ, which is technology heavy, the NASDAQ is about down about fifteen percent this year fifteen to sixteen percent so far this year, and then even small companies small companies are a place when the economy is improving which which it has been uh, people really favor smaller companies and small companies are even down eleven percent to start this year uh, globally we 're seeing you know similar results around the world from All the same issues, inflation and supply chain issues. We have Japan. Japan's only down 3%. Europe is down 8% this year. There's a surprising standout and it's likely related to, uh, the impact of, you know, Russia and their kind of their relationship with Europe. But the UK stock market is actually up 3% this year which was sort of one of the only standouts I saw in terms of the just general kind of markets. Um, a couple of interesting things we, we saw. I, I really enjoyed this statistic when we look at the U.S. Treasuries. So the 10-year U.S. Treasury is up 91% this year, which is just a gigantic move. In terms of where the 10 year is up at. It's not for owners, Rob. It's the actual rate in which the 10 year treasury is. And okay, so. Not, that's, that's
1: important. That's the, in, yep. the, the rate itself has essentially doubled, right?
0: Correct. Now. Interest,
1: uh, yeah. So oh, just, hold, holders of those bonds have lost money as the interest rates have gone up. That's
0: correct. Okay. Yeah. So if you were a holder of those, uh, intermediate kind of government bonds, you're down between 5 to 10% depending on the duration you took. So where you're trying to find your safety, you're being punished uh, in in a very big way for seeking out that set safety and kind of intermediate term government bonds. Uh, we gave the stat holders of long government bonds are down 15% this year. So if you owned the long-dated U.S. Treasuries from 20 to 30 years where you thought you were safe in the long term, you're down 15% in a hole that's very hard to, to dig out of with where rates are at now. Uh, and Another interesting stat, just in comparison to the 10-year benchmark rate rising 91%, the two-year U.S. Treasury rate, rose at an even faster pace. And so the two-year U.S. Treasury benchmark is up 268% this year. And that's what's creating this inverse inverted yield curve. So you have – it started at a very low number, but it's risen 268% year-to-date, which is just a – which is a a very steep increase, we would say.
1: So who cares about the two-year – Treasury rate. I mean, no, literally who, who does care? Who uses the two year treasury? Uh, meaning that the interest rates went from what? From one to two and a half percent or something like that?
0: Is Basically. That yeah. I mean, from below one to two and a quarter percent.
1: Okay. And so who, who uses the two year treasury? Well, Why is it important?
0: The two year treasury, I mean, it's, It's the early portion of the curve, but it's for shorter term financing. And so when we're looking at the, at the yield curve, so the yield curve is basically a curve of all the various uh, maturities of treasuries and bonds. And so when we look at that, it's an estimate of economic activity. So we are bullish on the growth over the next two years, but as we get past that two year mark, you start to see rates kind of decline from there almost. It actually starts to decline after the the five-year, but there's very little increase from two to five years. And so what you see is basically we feel more certainty about economic growth in the short term versus the long term is what we're seeing on on that yield curve.
1: So when you hear the term inverted yield curve, it means people don't have confidence in the long run as much as they do in the short run. Because economic activity being higher in the short run, it means that unlike when you used to go and buy a CD, the longer you invested for, the higher interest rate you got, right? That seems logical. You tie your money up, you get a higher rate. But the the opposite is actually true today. The longer you tie your money up, the lower interest rate you get because the confidence isn't in, isn't there in the market. That the economy is going to do well in the long run. Is that a correct summary, Kyle?
0: That is a correct summary. Thank you. You
1: have to check, you know, at my age, it's always important to double check.
0: Yeah. And so things. what, what we see is if you were to buy a five year US treasury, you would get paid 2.98%. And if you bought a 10 year, you get paid 2.90. So there's absolutely zero incentive to. To buy a longer term u s treasury after the five year mark and then until you you don't see an increase again until you get to the twenty year mark, which has very little you know incentive going out that much further
1: so what what probability do you see of a recession happening and in what time frame if you don't mind my asking
0: mm-hmm. well, the market would tell you that we should expect to see a recession in the basically the three to five year period that's where they're pricing bonds at right now is to say that we should expect to see a recession now there's there's varying types of recessions and so it's the the duration of that recession which probably concerns us the most right is that often when you have kind of impact or uh, i mean um i trying to think of the right word. When when there's structural issues in the economy like we're facing now a little bit, they're not event-driven. So event-driven uh, recessions are typically shorter-lived. So we see those recessions normally last in, in the six-month period. But when you have really structural issues, which we're facing now, if we were to have a recession, it's anticipated that those recessions last longer and take longer to recover from.
1: And, and the conditions that are, make it, I don't know what, probable or possible or likely or 50-50 that we're going to have a recession, whatever term you mm-hmm. want to use, are, what are those factors? Inflation, high, persi- persistent high inflation.
0: Persistent high inflation. The, well, the interest rates are a big one.
1: Right. And uh, very, a very tight labor market. Right. People can't find people to work. If you need a roof fixed, if you're a restaurant owner, you just, it's very difficult to, to staff. Most restaurants are closed, uh, part of the time on the East coast because they cannot find wait staff.
0: Yep. Now there's two sides of that in the recession piece, right? There's, there's a side where you can't find workers. Right. And so you choose an alternative, which is to not produce. And then there's the other side where they stop hiring, which is the other side of uh, a recession, which is to say workers don't want to hire you because there's or I mean, businesses don't want to hire you because there's no incentive to hire additional workers
1: or wages go up. And that adds to inflation. Right. Mm-hmm. Because it gets passed along. And that's certainly what's happened. Like you read about. What are they offering beginning truck drivers now or, or FedEx workers like 90,000 a year or a hundred thousand a year? That's, that's the beginning wage and Walmart is, is sending their, their line employees. There are people that work on the floor to truck driving school because they can't find truck drivers. It's true I'm not making that up. If I could make that up, I'd write a book. <laughs> no, we, we creative. <laughs> So, so you have wage inflation, you have uh, uh inflation and and it's maybe it's it's appropriate to talk about the the events that are driving up prices, you know, in the real world, not just you know, theoretically.
0: Mhm. So we we see, I mean, obviously the, the the item that is front and center on everybody's mind is the war between Ukraine and Russia, which is having a large impact on inflation and where that is being hitting us is mainly in commodity prices, so we see the rise in energy prices uh oil, natural gas. Uh, which is, I mean, Europe's impacted greater than we are here in the U.S., but we see it kind of as a global shock there. Uh, there's corn and wheat coming from the Ukraine, also a lot of metals. Uh, obviously we're, we're impacted greatly on metals. Rob has been buying a lot of steel. So I, I don't know how you've seen the prices increase on your steel purchases, Rob, but I imagine you're feeling that, that shock as well.
1: Well, I prefer to, to dumpster dive for my steel, but the steel that we, we, we went out to quote a five inch pipe, which is not standard and, and 10 feet of five inch steel pipe was going to be a thousand dollars if you could get it. Um, and, and my, my next stop is Gary Griffin's. A graveyard because he's been stockpiling <laughs> yeah, yep. steel for years, and and so he's in the in the middle of next weekend's night. I'm headed up there to El Rito.
0: Yeah, and then we we move beyond Ukraine and Russia, and we look at we look at China in large part as well. Uh, there's there's big issues in China related to COVID shutdowns. China has taken a no COVID policy. And we see massive shutdowns across China, which are impacting the supply for everything from semiconductors, pieces for vehicles. They're not shipping. There's a a great interactive map where you can look at all the ships that are waiting to, to dock at port in China. And they just have to sit there in the ocean and wait their turn because nobody's working because they have the economy completely shut down in parts of China right now.
1: And I think that's it. however, however much price pressure that's created and however sad it is, which is very sad for the Chinese people. If you, if you read accounts of people literally being locked up and they go around and deliver food rations, it just shows the absolute stupidity of a centrally planned economy where the decisions are made by like, 300 people for a billion people and how they just, they just are not getting it right. Right. Be- the, uh, the, the, suffering that we, you know, the social suffering that our country in Western Europe experienced because of the pandemic is whatever is, you know, being discovered, but just think about, about people literally not being allowed to go out of their apartments for a month or two months And, and not knowing that and that, and that's, that's the case there that, and so in a way, the threat of China becoming like the preeminent world power, this is like showing their basic structural weaknesses, in my opinion. And that really, um, because they don't have any mechanisms for, for, for dissent or plur, you know, uh, plurality or whatever. That, that really they, it, it, it was interesting in the seventies going back to the inflation. Remember that was when Japan was considered to be the greatest threat to America's like economic dominance. People thought Japan were, were going to take the Japanese were going to take over. They bought half of Hawaii, right? The golf courses and everything. That was really the worst part of it because golf got to be too
0: expensive. It's important.
1: It, um, uh, and And so now we've had this China sort of thing about the Chinese surpassing us but i I just don't see it i don't I don't think they have the resilience or the entrepreneurship. they certainly have the work ethic and the education things that are are somewhat lacking in in our country but you know, it's a, it's a, it's a trade-off there. Sorry to get off topic, Kyle. Kyle oh, no, can... that's great.
0: Yeah. I think that's, that's important to talk about. And, and we see it, you know, there's direct Im- impacts on the stock market and investing. So, uh, a move we made earlier in the year where we really moved away from Chinese investments uh, has, has worked out pretty well because we've seen essentially a pullback. Like if we look at the, you know, Chinese tech markets, they were down 30% last year and they've dropped another 50 plus percent this year in just the Chinese tech markets. And so then that's normally where people invest most of their money in China is these growing tech companies like Alibaba or Tencent. So anyways, it's a, it's an interesting factor and even Companies we've, we've liked in the past, we've really kind of moved away from because we've seen that government inter- interference impacting investment.
1: How has cryptocurrency fared through all of this, Kyle?
0: Yeah, cryptocurrency has been sort of a, we'll call it a, a lackluster performer to start the year. So we look at Bitcoin and Bitcoin's down about 11% this year. So it's, it's well off its peak. It's probably, I think, 30% off its peak level. But we and see... Why, why,
1: why is that? Because wasn't Bitcoin and these sites, whatever, cryptocurrencies, weren't they supposed to thrive in eras of like turmoil as a safe haven?
0: There, there's a cliche term you can find on the internet whenever Bitcoin is discussed, and it's always said that Bitcoin fixes this, is what the uh, pro-Bitcoin people say. So anytime you have an issue, they say, hey, by the way, Bitcoin would fix this issue. Uh, it's anti-inflationary. There's no central government. And Bitcoin has not fixed anything this year, unfortunately, for investors in Bitcoin. Um, the big reason is that you have a mingling of investors in Bitcoin, One, Bitcoin has proved to be a little inefficient, so it hasn't quite worked like people would like. And then the other side is that as people are moving away from risk, the assumption is that, oh, we don't trust our government. We don't trust this or that going on in the world. We're going to buy Bitcoin is what the theory was. Well, the opposite has occurred. The opposite said we don't trust Bitcoin either because we want to move away from risk. And so you've seen net selling of Bitcoin where people are really moving away from it. Good. So uh quickly just to we can close out inflation at the end, but the last factor impacting inflation obviously was was easy money. So there was a lot of money put into everyone's pockets around the world. Uh and not just people but corporations as well with low interest rates. It was it was too easy to spend money. There were big stimulus packages that came out globally, not just the US, but also in Europe supporting people during the pandemic. Uh, interesting stat we, we just talked about a minute ago is we're seeing that it looks like, like tax returns this year. So people filing their taxes, we're going to see about a 20% increase in the amount people are receiving back on their taxes. So as we try to battle inflation and we're trying to remove money from the system, we're also seeing a big influx of cash back into people's pockets again. And so we keep fighting something that, I mean, at the moment almost feels like a losing battle. Good. Any other thoughts on inflation, Rob, or anyone on the group in the chat?
2: All right. Oh, please. Yes. Um, I have a question. <clears throat> we were talking about um, the lack of workers and how difficult, you know, how that's driving up wages. But, uh, you know, unemployment rates right now are fairly low, but during the pandemic, when it first started, unemployment rates went sky high, everybody lost their jobs. And there were lots of support programs For people who weren't able to work, you know, both at the federal and state level. And most of those and the unemployment programs have all begun to run out. So why do you think there's a shortage of workers right now? I mean, it would seem to me like if those support programs have run out, people need to go back to work. Mm -hmm. But they don't seem to be doing that or at least not willing to take, you know, Jobs at Wendy's or McDonald's or something like that.
0: Correct. So there's, there's a mix of things happening there. One, you have a large portion of people that's decided to exit the workforce. So right now when we see unemployment at 3.6% is that you actually, we have more jobs than job seekers in the US currently. So there's, there's just a general misalignment as it is, which allows people to kind of move between jobs, pick and choose a little bit more. And then we're also seeing the, the largest wage growth and the place where there's the most jobs is in many service industries. And there's a certain amount of nervousness in those industries for people going back to work. So people are making decisions like I may be trained as a, as a waiter. But the risk doesn't feel worth it to a certain segment of the population, even though that's where we're seeing the largest wage growth. They kind of haven't hit that equilibrium where they say, oh, now the wages are at a point that really makes sense for me to get back to work. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Rob. But I that's, would oh, clear, add a thought, please.
3: Kyle. Uh, I think there are, and it's good to see you, Gene. Um, I think a couple of other things that we're seeing, uh, you know, a lot of people – did get the government stimulus, they, some spent it, many put it away in their savings. And it enabled them to really review working conditions. And so, you know, truckers, for example, Rob was referring to trucking before. We've heard about Amazon and the high level of scrutiny uh, that those employees are under lack of brakes or, you know, being constantly monitored. Truckers are experiencing the same types of conditions. They're stuck in a truck for hours on end. They have um, – they're monitored every move they make, even if they're trying to listen to a podcast and change a station of a podcast. Um, they can get in trouble for that. Um, you know, I won't – I'll try not to be crass, but we've all heard uh, stories over the years of, you know, how they are – without bathrooms on long runs, and, you know, a lot of them are really limited to the amount of breaks they can take. So people – and we're seeing uh, moves toward unionization uh, in many companies, not just Starbucks, um, although Starbucks is one of the major names in the news right now uh, as, you know, unions start to – that movement starts to spread. So people are really reviewing – what it's worth to them to go back to work and what those conditions look like. And I think that's, and then, you know, we've talked about it many times in here, but, uh, women, you know, who are struggling with a lack of childcare and the cost of childcare and the cost of childcare has gone up substantially, um, along with everything else. Um, and I think, you know, some of it for valid reasons, just further, you know, hygiene, man, uh, you know, protocols, things like that. But, um it's it's very difficult uh to it particularly for those maybe who are more nervous about the um pandemic and having their children in school or putting you know if it's a choice of young children not having them in daycare and either not being able to afford it or not feeling safe to put them in daycare so I think there are just so many factors at play right now yeah.
0: there there's a another big piece that we've seen also is that we had huge savings rates during the pandemic so as the government issued that stimulus or gave additional benefits to workers people saved large portions of that and i think that there's going i mean this is a little bit of a speculation point here but is that what we've seen is we've seen people holding money in their banks but increasing their spending using consumer credit and such and so essentially borrowing while feeling the security of having cash in the bank, but eventually that has to be repaid. And I think there will be an eventual point where people have to make that decision about, Hey, now I actually have to repay certain debts and get back to work because that savings rate is going to decline over time.
1: So other, other factors with worker availability is uh, sort of the movement away from the core big cities during the pandemic. Uh, the reluctance to go back to offices because, you know, it's hard to keep them on the farm once they've seen gay parry. Um, you know, people like working in their pajamas, especially our staff. And um, uh, also, it's hard when it kind of sort of brings in the cost of housing and uh like what are what are people doing like, you know, prime working age. People in their thirties and forties, you know, who are establishing careers. Um, it's very difficult for people to, to make, to make it, make enough to qualify with the sort of runaway prices of real estate. Just, it's a, I'm sure all of you know people who, who are sort of priced out of the real estate market unless they have help from another generation. And, and so. I don't know. It's the 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 so people have to feel like their their future is brighter, you know, in order to work hard, right? That the the education and motivation is one thing, but the opportunity to get ahead, you know, which generally means in America to buy a house, right, is is further away than ever partially because of this long period of government support of uh, low interest rates, which, which has assisted the stock market and real estate prices so that people with ownership already have benefited at least on paper. Um, But people who are not owners have a wider, have a higher barrier to jump over to become owners. And, um, I think, you know, people have to have a motivation. The I think the you know young children are a motivation to work. Think about what are the be- the best motivations to, you know, to work twelve hours a day is, you know, buy a house, support your kids. You know. Um
0: We we encourage all our employees to buy very large houses and uh
1: and have have many, many, many children.
0: So they work twelve hours a day.
3: I think when my son was <laughs> accepted into prep, Kyle said, great, that means you're going to really need your, this job.
0: <laughs> yeah, you and I works too hard, so we won't, we won't say she works any harder now, but, uh, that's great. True.
1: So, um, you know, the demographics again are changing and, uh, I think, you know, the, it, it's interesting that the, to talk about sort of the impact of climate change on companies and sort of ESG issues is something that we generally touch upon. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, you know, there's, there's much more government involvement in, in trying to see what the climate change impacts are. The SEC has a mandate to do that, which is, you know, a, a very new thing that they, uh, and 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 corporate boards are being uh, scrutinized for their um you know their uh, their consideration of these issues uh, and the movement towards um or away from from uh, uh fossil fuels um whatever impact that's had good or bad you know in the current political situation as is also uh, something that, that's impacted um, the the activity in the oil and gas field, uh, w- which was a major industry and a major export uh, of, of the U.S. So there's a lot of cross currents going on that where where politics has impacted sort of the regulatory environment, which impacts companies' costs of doing business. Alongside of their employment challenges of finding, you know, motivated and trained workers.
0: Good. Well, Bethany, you have a question come in? It's,
4: yeah, just well, a question or a comment actually on that topic, Rob. It reminded me of a an article I recently read, where in short, the the question I have is, do you think ESG leaders can one day provide a hedge against inflation? I mean, I think ESG certainly has had a rise in the past couple of years, but the article talked about because of inflation in us trying to phase out coal, gas, oil, you know, and provide more towards electric vehicles, wind, solar, the cost to to get there obviously has slowed that down. And so do you think ESG could provide, if not already, a hedge against inflation now or in the future? I'm not
1: sure what you mean by a hedge against inflation. I that's
4: yeah, in, in a sense uh, where similar to like a commodity or, you know, in a sense like a commodity, you know, looking at ESG, ESG funds as a hedge. Oh, Um because
1: they're focused on renewable energy that, that those will somehow escape the inflationary pressures. Is that, is that the, that's, that's a big piece
0: of it. I, I did, I saw the article as well and Think, uh, I, I think, I mean, yes and no, right? We we see it now, and we see many ESG funds with a heavy tilt towards technology companies and technology stocks, which have been greatly impacted by inflation so far this year. And so thinking about them as a hedge, I I actually disagreed with the article a little bit there. I think that more of what we're, we're seeing is when we think of ESG as – Trying to use it as a risk mitigation tool. So saying, what are, what are risks that present themselves from climate change? Or what are the risks that are presenting themselves in relation to not having supportive practices at your company, right? Supportive social practices. There's a lot of factors that create risks at companies. And I think that's actually what we see moving forward, not necessarily – I think it the hedging doesn't actually work, but when we're able to look at it, the argument is to say we have a better understanding of risks that exist within this company as we look out – I mean, the ESG mandates, right, environmental, social, and governance, since we didn't say it before uh, – the major goals are sort of these 2050 goals, right? The year 2050, which feels pretty far away, although the last three years have have flown by pretty quickly for most of us. Uh Just think if we could do that 10 times over and we're there in 2050. Uh, but really companies are starting now working at those, working at those goals and it's an expectation of investors. And so, I think really we're looking at it more along those lines versus versus a uh, actual hedge to anything like inflation. I mean, that, that was the same argument with Bitcoin, right? There were aspects of Bitcoin that made it a hedge against inflation. And it just, it wasn't a reality.
1: You know, the, the price of electricity is going to be very important to watch. uh And as the summer comes on um, to see, How much of the country has a shortage of electricity, um, and why? And the same thing is in Europe, in in Western Europe, because by by shutting down nuclear plants and and coal plants, and sort of trying to move away from natural gas, at least in in this country, they don't. There are places in the country that don't allow homes to be built with natural gas appliances and that there are like dates where those appliances have to come out of the house which which um is uh it's whatever what what whatever i have strong feelings that that's kind of got it backwards but the the question is uh what is going to power electric vehicle stations if if everyone is making electric vehicles Who's going to provide the electricity to do that? How is electricity going to be generated? And you know, those of you since, you know, this is kind of a throwback to the seventies kind of session, which I'm glad for. If you remember the whole earth catalog, you know, where, where the, the, the green, the first images of the planet were like on the cover. That guy, Stuart Brand, you could, you could, I hate to say Google because I hate to support a particular company, but you could look him up and see what he's doing today. He has, he has, he has become a very strong proponent of nuclear power because he feels like this is the only way to conserve resources and to provide the electricity. Um, and uh um it's just it's just interesting that it's not a um it's not a black and white issue the solutions to providing electricity which you know i think this summer you will see i don't know someone was saying that new mexico may experience some rolling brownouts has anyone else heard that it,
3: it partly, Rob. I think had to do, and I'll try to remember the article. But I think it had to do with contracts with San Juan that were expiring, and questions around um, uh, energy coal, right? And energy, uh, mm-hmm, yeah. and but they, to my understanding, to my knowledge, they renewed those contracts. Kyle, do you is does that ring a bell? Uh, um, I can't say. I believe that is what I read, and uh, but that's not to say, you know, that yeah. we won't still run into that this year.
1: No, anyway, I mean, you know, Germany, West Germany has like their price of electricity has tripled in the last 5 or 10 years. I'm not sure exactly what that it, it it's become a major cost issue um because and and it I'm not really sure what their you know, they What their changed attitude is, especially with the Ukraine cutoff of, you know, combined, I think it's okay to burn natural gas that is produced somewhere else, you know, thousands of miles away, but they, you know, people are adverse to having natural gas pumped from where they live. And, and so those, those forces are convert, are, are going to be very important uh, coming up, I think in the next, like year. That you'll see, and certainly five years with if electric vehicles become the norm, and um, and electricity is it's it's very expensive, I think, to charge your car during the day, right, Kyle? Well, we Cali- about- in
0: California, yes, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, in, in very populated areas of California, it's an issue, so.
1: To charge it, your car in California during the day, how much? It, it, what would what well, it it's
0: be? it's it it has a variable pricing, and so if everyone is using electricity, then it's basically you can expect to pay three to ten times the normal rate to charge your vehicle during the day. So I I, I think go ahead.
1: No, no, I was just going to ask what's what's the not what's the actual number for recharging your Whatever You're... I
0: mean I, I, I've looked at a lot of charts and and the comparable cost of charging your car versus gasoline is still significantly lower even even with those rates right now. and so obviously, if we saw a surging in pricing across the board around the country, we could see that that be different, but there would need to be a large increase in the cost of electricity to, for it to become more expensive than than oil. And that was, that was actually several months ago when, when oil was much more affordable than, than what we see today. And so we see a similar issue, right, with the oil supply today. It's sort of a a counter argument to that as we, we say, oh, your electricity is going to cost you so much, but I mean, anyone who drives their car right now, uh, my, I'm trying to think of my, I've got my truck, which I don't have to fill up very often. And Rob, you have a big diesel truck, right? With those, the big gas tank and it, I mean, it, the pump stops at a hundred dollars, right? Once you hit a hundred dollars, you have to reauthorize your credit card again. So that, that's sort of my experience is that it stops at a hundred dollars, which never makes me feel good. So I try to minimize my time in the truck. But anyways, it's just, it's a counter conversation to, when we're thinking about the cost of electricity. And so.
1: True. And, and obviously energy costs are a big part of inflation, mm-hmm. uh, in, even though in some measures they exclude them. You know what the largest component of the CPI is, the consumer price index, is is, is housing prices.
0: Yeah. And so that's probably a good place to, to jump into because we we're looking, we saw the 30-year U.S. mortgage rate uh, hit, I think, Where is that? 5.28% today. Which is, you know, considerable when we look at, I think the, we had the low point here at the third year was down to 296 in, I guess that's August of 21. So we've seen that come up, I mean, quite a lot and it's a big piece of inflation, but it'll start to have other effects. And I mean, what's happening is you have the Federal Reserve talking about raising rates and mortgage providers have to quickly make guesses about where long-term rates are going to be. And so, right, if you're going to lend somebody for 30 money for 30 years, you don't want to be stuck with a 3% loan when rates are at 5%. And so basically you have to start to make those guesses very quickly. And then it has broader implications as we move forward from everything from buying a house to selling your house to the rental market in in large part as well. Uh, one of the, one of the impacts from the great financial crash was that the home builders stopped building homes. And that's one of the reasons we have the large shortage in housing that we're experienced today. Is as that occurred, the incentive to build houses kind of dwindled for a period of time and we didn't build enough homes. And so there, there's concern that that will start again. And so not only are we going to have housing that's very expensive, but then we're going to have limited supply, which will drive rents up quite a lot for these people that we talked about earlier who are already facing pressures to, you know, afford their rents or afford mortgages. All right, Gary. We
3: also, I was just, oh, oh sorry. I was just going to add that we're having a deeper real estate conversation virtually, uh, for those who are interested in joining on May 25th. Uh, so we'll have someone presenting from Goldman Sachs. Uh, I think Rob's going to speak to the commercial real estate market and then we're hoping to have a local realtor talk about the local market.
0: Yeah. So we're going to try to do like a roundtable conversation next month. So uh, that's thank you for the plug, Karen. Uh we appreciate it Gary if you'd like to unmute and
1: You're kind on of the spot now. I know it's I
2: got it. Um well isn't um the labor shortage an argument for immigration?
1: Definitely.
0: We would agree. It makes
1: no sense why people would object to workers coming. They, they, they are, you know, I, I, I'm, I believe that the statistics show that they are well, you know, more law-abiding than U.S. citizens. They do jobs that U.S. citizens won't do. That it's
3: they pay taxes
1: it's it's a it's a mystery to me it's it's i mean it's it's like all of us are immigrants right at some point and it just it makes no sense because farms and factories can't operate without the construction industry can't operate without foreign labor I just dug a i didn't do it myself some guys from Ba Guacamole from Guatemala <laughs> dug a sewer trench that nobody locally would do. They just, they just flat out wouldn't do it. It wouldn't get done unless there were foreign workers. They, they just, so it's just, it makes no sense. It's, it's just one of those political sort of conceptual ideas. You know, people who are against immigration, how many of them have actually been impacted ne- negatively by an immigrant? Probably very few. It's just, it makes, it makes no sense. I guess it's a factor in the Ohio, like, Senate it's, race, yeah. right?
0: It's a big, it's a big topic for the Ohio Senate race. Right. It's like,
1: yeah, they're, they're close to the border. I guess with Canada.
0: Very great. Lisa, you have your question?
3: You were talking about the housing market, and I was wondering, I mean, I'm sure you'll talk in much more depth about it on May 25th, but I did have the question, if I wanted to invest in purchasing a home, uh, particularly for, say, an Airbnb, uh, I'm gathering this is not the time to be doing it, but then when would be?
0: <laughs> well, it, it's a really great question because we've – we could look back to where we were in the stock market five years ago, right? And we had, you know, we, we had already seen a 10 year run up in the stock market or nine years, whatever it be then. And it said the stock market's high. When do we, when do we feel comfortable buying stocks again? And then now the pullback didn't happen until five years later. Uh, similarly with housing is we can, we have that – there's a little bit of a euphoria right now when we talk to people that there's a feeling that, oh, housing prices are just going to keep going up. Like no better time than now because we don't know where they're going to go. Uh, it's It's very hard to predict, and a lot of it is just, you know, when you're making a decision on an investment is having that analysis where you're doing some kind of, I guess, testing for sensitivity, right? So – if you're owning it for a long period of time and you're able to cash flow at a certain rate, it may make sense, but it'd be something we'd have, to be happy to talk through with you. But it's, it's really, there's a lot of individual decisions that will go into that, whether or not it makes sense. Um, I don't know what you think, Rob.
1: Yeah. Um, I agree pretty much with what. You're saying. <laughs> yeah. It's
0: right there. The, there's an entry point in real estate when we purchase, which which always matters, but one of the, the bigger things that matters is when you're able to sell, right? And so if you've owned it for 10 years and the market is down and that's when you want to sell, you're kind of a price taker at that point. I think in large part, right, like there's going to be opportunities to sell real estate in the future where that price has gone up but you just have to be able to, to wade through those ups and downs of the market.
1: I mean, prices are at historical highs now. So to buy, uh, unless, I mean, if you're very interested in being a short-term rental manager, then then it's pretty easy to pencil out whether your cash flow is going to make sense. Um, and people do that a lot in Asheville, North Carolina. I mean, because the demand is so high for visitors and that may be true for Santa Fe as well that, that people are looking for short-term rentals. Um, it's a lot of work and, um, there, there's very few values on the market. It's, it's, it's like the stock market. Well, except for Netflix, I guess, um, it's very hard to find. Uh, a, va- a value where you, you can't count on appreciation, I think, if you buy in today's market. So it's a cash flow analysis issue as to whether you should, and, and of course a lifestyle, unless you have a manager for it. Um, it's very tempting though, because the rates, you know, the rental rates are so high. I, I mean, if you can do it successfully, you can make a lot of money. As long as, you know, and uh, different, uh, different, uh, uh, locations have different laws and, and those laws can change as well because it, it's impacting the uh, availability of affordable housing, which is a, re- a very big issue nationwide, uh, of, of for affordability and short-term rentals is, it, it definitely drives the price of housing up for, uh, for working people. There's no question that it it has that impact.
0: Great. Do we have any other questions out there? Great. Thank you. Thank you. And and we'd be happy to talk with you if you're if you're going through the decision making process, of course. Yes, thank you. Um
1: It's it's worth looking at because I'm looking at one now myself even if it's like and it's and it's like 50% too expensive to do but I'm still looking at it so it's uh you know um, yeah I think I think getting with uh, people in the office one to one is a good idea to do that analysis.
0: Great, thanks Rob. Good. We'll, We'll invite additional hand raises. All right, Lori. Please unmute and welcome your question. Nope, not yet. Okay. All right, we can Um, hear you.
5: Thank you. I have a question. Um, going back to um, um, people being able to um, work from home, not having uh, you know, just changing their careers and doing all that. So. A lot of that also affects the real estate that the companies own. Um and and this is it's huge. How does how does that or does that play in into any kind of I don't know, something that we should be looking at? Um, does it affect does it affect maybe the wages that they're getting or higher or lower or I mean because it I mean you know my son his company, and you know I mean so many people I know they're now working from home um and and doing the exact same thing that they were doing at so there's a huge amount of real estate that the the companies don't have to carry anymore right because they don't they don't need that does that does that go into any kind of calculation on any of that? To like uh, unemployment or into wages or um, you know the lack of or not uh, employees is that is that looking no. at it
1: all you know companies are adjusting wages downward for people who work from home without okay. without without question that's happening they're adjusting and they're also adjusting it to depending on uh, you could be in a big company and move to a lower cost area and the company's if they're astute will catch up and lower wages because you've moved to a lower cost area. Um,
5: and they can do that.
1: They're they're allowed to do that. That it hasn't been outlawed yet, but it may well soon be outlawed. Huh. I'm just joking. I know. Uh,
5: okay. Um, okay. I just wondered if I mean it seems like uh, that is I would mean, know, think that that would also might affect their, um uh, maybe their cost of, um their, um health insurance or, and things like that, or, I don't know, I just, I don't know, it just keeps, it uh, keeps, keeps coming I mean, up to my mind, what are they going to do with all that property? Well, so yes. Yeah.
1: Right, and we haven't addressed that. So the issue is, well, like in midtown Manhattan, where people don't want to go back to their skyscrapers, offices, certainly five days a week, the value of those leases has gone down dramatically. Okay. And, and the corporate parks, I, I, um, it, it's, 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 uh, I mean, the corporations have been reducing their workforce for a long time, right? They're becoming more efficient. So, but there is a, you know, there's a, lease prices are going down. So you would think that the price of the buildings would be going down too, right? i don't i don't i don't necessarily think that's happening yeah
5: interesting and so they're they'll the companies the the corporations um are not are not selling those necessarily but keeping them
1: you know they for the most part they lease office space because oh, it's it's a straight deduction okay. and and so the people that the companies are able to renegotiate leases at lower rates, and so it's the landowners, you know, the the, the building owners who who are taking the hit. Got it. Okay. Because of the change in okay. in, uh, in demand.
5: Sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have restaurants in Manhattan, you know, that are vacant. Right. One. We hope that they'll lease up soon, but it's definitely changed. And you read about New York city and, you know, the new mayor wants people to go back to work and just ain't, ain't, ain't happening. On
3: On the flip side, we were also reading this week that the boroughs, so Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, because people are working from home, they've actually seen an increase in business out there. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of businesses, especially lower Manhattan or Midtown. If you're in the city, there are a lot of businesses that are focused on sort of day, you know, the people they serve during the day. Um, And then, of course, there's restaurants, things at night. But I was there a few weeks ago. It's very strange right now. Very few people, you know, percentage wise, even on the subway. I mean, there were people riding the subway, but uh, Times Square Station is a fraction Of the people that you generally see. Um, And, it, you know, I also lived there in the past. I've always felt very safe there. It doesn't feel quite as safe in Manhattan because there aren't as many people out on the street at 10 o'clock at night. So you're walking home, you're taking the subway, used to be crowds, you don't feel that. Right now, um, but Brooklyn, Queens, you're seeing all these businesses that either started to reopen and do well with people working for home, from home, or they were delivering during that time, pivoting to delivery service. You've also seen new businesses open in those areas, uh, in the boroughs because people, there is now business for them during the day. People are there. So it's, it's just an interesting uh, relationship and and how it's impacted outside of Manhattan.
0: Great. Thank you, Karen. Well, I think with that, we've, we've surpassed our hour of your time, uh, but we, we welcome any questions. Uh, please feel free to email any one of us or just give us a call. That's what we're here for. We're just hanging out waiting to hear from you all. So, uh, Really appreciate the time everyone everyone being here and and asking great questions. Uh just uh a quick note, once again, as Karen mentioned, I believe it's May twenty-fifth. Is that the correct date? We're we're hosting a, a round table talking about real estate specifically, and so we'll be sending out details about that. And so we welcome you and, and anyone you would like to to bring to that uh virtually, of course. And uh also just quickly. We we have a new hire that we'll be starting in our office on May second. Her name is Bonita, and and you may like to know that she went to the University of Colorado Boulder. So we may have someone who's interested in that specific university on this call.
1: And Uh, she studied mathematics. So another wonk.
0: Excuse the expression. (laughs) All right, we got
5: a hello everybody.
3: Oh,
0: she's here. So she's saying hello. Excellent. I am
3: here. Sorry, I was having problems with my camera earlier, but um, I got the zoom up and running.
0: <laughs> Great. Well, thank you Welcome. for joining us. And uh, we hope you all get a chance to meet her soon. And with that, I believe we'll be closing it out. That was our grand finale. That was a perfect hello. So uh thank you all. And we look forward to seeing and talking with you soon.
6: The Raccoon Group is comprised of investment professionals registered with High Tower Advisors LLC and SEC registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with High Tower Securities LLC, Member FINRA, and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through High Tower Advisors LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. The Raccoon Group and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. The Raccoon Group and Hightower Advisors, LLC, assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in this document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the author, do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.